0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, hacking your mind. We make many of our decisions, including political ones, not on the basis of what we think, in quotation marks, but rather on feelings, intuition, and habits. New work by social scientists helps explain how this works for Donald Trump. That's the argument of a new series on PBS called Hacking Your Mind. Also, refugees after World War II in Europe and today. Historian David Nassau explains his new book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. But first, The Politics of the Supreme Court. Trump pushing ahead to replace Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg before the next president is sworn in on January 20th may help Democrats in November's election. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, the pundits say uh, this kind of open seat on the Supreme court usually mobilizes the right wing base more than the left wing base. So that would help Trump and Republican candidates, but apparently you do not agree with that.
1: No, I, well, I think this is a a different, a different animal, really. This is, this differs significantly from past court fights. It differs because of several factors. One, uh, it's occurring uh, in the stretch of, uh, you know, the stretch run of an election season where uh, the uh, fate of the Affordable Care Act and uh, uh, that of Americans with pre existing conditions, whether or not they get their health care from the Affordable Care Act, is coming before the court just one week after the election. So uh, this touches on that issue. This also touches on Roe v. Wade. I know, um, pro-choice advocates such as ourselves uh, have been saying this is an issue in court fights uh, for the longest time. That generally tends to mobilize uh, the right uh, more than the left uh, because they are they they see this as a a key demand, and you know, whereas the majority of Americans haven't really been persuaded that Roe is on the line. I think it's fairly easy uh, to make the case that Roe is on the line now. If the Republicans get their sixth justice on the court, the, the, the front runner, Judge uh, Coney Barrett, has uh, you know won the support of hardcore anti-choice advocates precisely because they think she would be uh, at minimum the fifth vote for overturning Roe. Yeah.
0: I, I, I looked up the public opinion polling on, on the two that you've pointed to. Uh, how many people want Obamacare repealed? Now it's about a third, maybe 32% or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the rest wanted either continued or expanded. And the people who want Medicare for all, that's a very popular uh, issue abolishing everything even smaller than than Trump's base, which shows that some of his base wisely (laughs) needs the kind of health care coverage that only the government can provide right now. Abortion rights, how many people want Roe v. Wade repealed? That's about 30 percent. So in terms of electoral issues, that is a surefire loser it it does mobilize people in some states who are already mobilized around this. So I think you're very right that Obamacare and abortion rights are preserving them, are two of the Democrats' best issues, and this puts them very much front and center. But what what about the larger issue of whether the voters should have A say in what happens to the Supreme Court. The you know the Republicans made a very convincing case a couple of years ago that this sort of thing should not be rushed uh, before uh, an election. The New York Times had a wonderful op-ed on Wednesday making that case with, and the footnotes, every sentence was uttered by a Republican senator, a brilliant op-ed, and I found it very convincing. How about you?
1: Well, I mean, actually, they were talking about a nomination that was made eight months before the election, uh, which I think should have gone forward. I mean, they didn't hear uh, uh, the case of Merrick Garland because they said that was too close. Now we're talking about a nomination that has yet to be made and when it is made, it'll be fewer than 40 days before the election. Uh, and that, they say, is OK. So this is giving situational ethics a bad name. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I think this is, uh, th- this is an issue as well. So if you add up these three issues, uh, what uh, this could do to uh, actually terminating Americans' ability to get health coverage at an affordable rate, if you're uh, have a, a pre-existing conditions, what it would do to Roe, and a a host of social issues uh, that uh, divide the American public along the lines you you cited, John, and what it does to the whole notion of voters being able to choose a president uh, whose direction on the court they can can discern. Uh, Those are three reasons why I think this actually helps the Democrats electorally more than it does the Republicans.
0: So, so why then doesn't Trump do the politically smart thing and postpone this until after the election?
1: I think there are two reasons. One, he, uh, he, he wants a court that will rule for him as it ruled for Bush and Bush v. Gore. Uh, and this would give him one more uh, justice that might be uh, amenable to that. Uh, that's the first reason. The second reason is it looks even more rotten if he loses... Uh, and then the court goes ahead and confirms his justice anyway, and it looks so rotten that maybe an additional Republican might affect uh, might defect. As it as it stands now, there are only two, and everyone else has uh, has sort of climbed aboard. They, they've climbed aboard, no matter who the nominee is. I should add. You know, yes. I read a, a little piece suggesting you know McConnell should just you know call the Senate into session today and have the Republicans uh, confirm everyone on Trump's shortlist, uh, you know, without the pretense of, uh, of a hearing, and uh, whoever gets nominated then, you know, then automatically becomes, uh, becomes confirmed. But, you know, he, he might lose a couple of votes if he loses the election, some Republican senators, you know, it's remote, given uh, the mind meld that uh, exists between them and Trump at this juncture. Uh, But, you know, some of them might defect after the election. So he wants it before, and it looks uh, almost certain that he will get it before the election.
0: Now, I have friends who, who ask me about the Republicans who are retiring, who are leaving the Senate. What do they care? Why not do the ethical thing? Why not do the right thing and not vote at this point to confirm trump 's nominee
1: Well, I think the signal there was Lamar Alexander, who was known as sort of an old school republican, has worked across the aisle a lot during his career, but very early on, after just one or two days uh, after ginsburg 's death, he said he would uh, go ahead with voting before the uh, before the election. Uh, he and some of the old senior Republicans who uh, uh, made a big stink about Merrick Garland, such as uh, Charles Grassley, who was then the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee and is probably not likely to run again, though his seat isn't up this year, he's into his 80s, they, uh, uh, they, they said we're on board. You know, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, they have Republican friends, they don't want to be ostracized at their country club, if, uh, you know, so uh, they, they want to go to, a, a, a you know, a peaceful Republican retirement community and not ruffle any feathers.
0: That's a great reason. The next thing I'd like to take up is what, um, assuming Biden wins and is sworn in on January 20th, and and that now there is a a two-vote Republican majority on the court, shouldn't the Democrats correct the crimes of Trump and Mitch McConnell, first in the case of Merrick Garland, second in the case of whoever they're going to put on the court now? We should the argument goes we should as soon as soon as we have control of the Senate and the White House, we should add two justices to the court because we were robbed of two, and nothing in the Constitution says Congress can't expand the supreme Court what What, what do you think of that argument?
1: Well, we should add more than two, we should add four because they will have a six three majority, and the way the only way to restore balance on the court is to add. Four. Now I think, you know, there's, there's the question of how you argue for this. Yeah. Uh, I I think, you know, I mean, the Republicans will raise the specter of court packing, uh, you know, which not even Franklin Roosevelt could accomplish at the height of his popularity. Uh, But, um, you know, I think the Democrats should make clear that it's the Republicans who have been engaging in court packing by refusing to hear uh, the Merrick Garland uh, nomination and by rushing through a nomination now on the eve of a presidential and senatorial election. So, A, make, make the case repeatedly that Republicans have uh, gone in for court packing, and what the Democrats should describe what they're doing is court balancing. Have the court, in the broadest sense, Reflect the basic priorities of the American people, and then justices decide what they want to do.
0: So, the objection that then arises is well, what if in 2024 uh, the Republicans regain power and then they add two, and then instead of going from nine to 13, then we would have 15 or 17? Wouldn't that be terrible? Would it be well, terrible?
1: you know, there, I think what the Democrats should do is is what Paul Starr, my my uh, colleague at the Prospect, argued uh, in, a, in a piece that went up on Wednesday uh, on the Prospect website, www.prospect.org. And what Paul argues is the Democrats should go uh, to expand the court by four, but simultaneously restructure how the court works henceforth, uh, giving justices... 18-year uh, terms uh, and and creating a, a process, therefore, that would enable uh, future presidents to make appointments, but not in the helter-skelter, random, who's on top way that uh, that we do it now. So I think those two reforms have to be
0: joined together. I believe that limited terms, for, limiting terms for Supreme Court justices, although it's a very logical idea. I believe that is prohibited by the Article 3 of the Constitution, which says Supreme Justices uh, shall serve uh, as long as they are not found guilty of uh, violating good behavior. That's the 18th century way of saying a lifetime appointment. Of course,
1: lifetimes in the 18th century were about (laughs) 50 years, and right now they're 80 you know, for for people in the socioeconomic class of Supreme Court justices, they're eighty to ninety. Yeah. Uh, in the case of uh, the, the, the John Paul Stevens, it was it was damn near one hundred. So um, yeah, that would be that would be a problem, and it would be uh, it would be difficult. Uh, to deal with that, unless you, John, have a solution that addresses <laughs> that, which I do not.
0: So let's just, in the time we have left here, I just want to look at the uh, electoral map right now. We're speaking on Wednesday morning when the Washington Post has just put out, which is a very good poll, just put out a poll showing that the race is a lot tighter in Arizona and Florida than we had believed based on earlier polls. Uh, Biden can still win the uh, election in the Electoral College without Arizona and Florida, but it would be better if he won Arizona and Florida. What, what is your uh, feeling uh, this morning as, as we speak?
1: Well, th- this poll isn't really later than other polls, uh, it, and it's at odds significantly with every other poll that's come out in the last week to 10 days. So, you know, even good polls can be outliers. So I would say we need to wait. Uh, wait a bit and see what subsequent polls show us about Arizona and, uh, and Florida. By the way, on Florida, I, I'm, I may have the minority view here that Trump will go with uh, Judge Lagoa rather than Judge uh, Coney Barrett, because he might think this, this helps him in Florida. And I think all Trump is really concerned about is getting reelected. I don't think he really gives a damn about anything else. So that's, that, that's my two cents on uh, on on Florida.
0: And of course, we think that defending uh, Obamacare is, from repeal is a big issue in Florida, because I've heard there's some, some senior citizens there.
1: That's the word that's gotten around, yes. So uh, uh, if Trump uh, uh, is, is doing better in the uh, Cuban-American community than uh, he did last time around, he, he may, again, think that Judge Lagoa uh, will, uh, will will solidify that. But, yeah, there are certainly other factors in play in Florida. And, uh, you know, uh, there are still Democratic organizations that are trying to help uh, former felons pay up whatever they owe so they can vote in the in the upcoming election, as an overwhelming majority of Floridians voted in a ballot measure to have them do.
0: And I've read that Michael Bloomberg has committed how much money to to winning Florida? Hundred million dollars or something? A hundred million,
1: yes, yes. I think I I <laughs> I can only assume that Michael uh, Bloomberg thinks he has his finger on the pulse of. Uh, Elderly Jews, being one himself, <laughs> okay. uh, and is uh, is just trying to to use a a Yiddish phrase zets them, vote uh, <laughs> even more. But he's also apparently providing some funds for uh, the former felons as well.
0: And LeBron James is contributing a hundred thousand. Seems like not enough for LeBron James, who I believe is a billionaire. But it's great that athletes are engaged in the uh, political process, especially in Florida, in this way.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, LeBron is, is, uh, is, is also understandably preoccupied at the moment by the uh, uh, Western Division uh, Championship uh, contest. But uh, he, he's, I think, been exemplary in a lot of ways and hopefully will, I'm pretty confident, will continue to be.
0: That's them. We've spoke, been speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show.
1: Always great to be here, John. <laughs>
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about refugees after World War II and today. For that, we turn to historian David Nassau. He's written award-winning, best-selling biographies in the past of Joseph Kennedy, William Randolph Hearst, and Andrew Carnegie. We talked about all of them here. He's taught at the City University Graduate Center. Now he's got a new book out. It's not about powerful men. Instead, it's about some of the most powerless people in the world, stateless refugees. In this case, at the end of World War II in Germany, it's called The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. David, welcome back.
2: Thank you. Glad to be
0: here. Well, we have many books on survivors of the Holocaust, hundreds. But your book on refugees in 1945 starts out by making it clear that you are not writing only about the Jews. Holocaust survivors are part of the story, but there's lots of others who had been slave laborers. Of course, there were POWs. Let's start with the refugees who were not Holocaust survivors, who were they, where did they come from?
2: The Germans knew very early on that in order to wage a war with millions of soldiers sent to the Eastern Front, they would have to replenish their labor force, which they did by importing Polish, Ukrainian, and other Eastern European young men and women, and then putting POWs to work in Germany. There were millions of guest workers, slave workers, imported into Germany during the war to work the farms, the mines, the mills, the factories. There was a second group of refugees who ended up in Germany when the war was over. And those were the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians, many of whom, not all, but many of whom fled their homelands in 1944 and 1945 because they had collaborated in one way or another with the German occupiers. And they knew that when the Red Army approached, as they knew it was going to in 1944, they would be in trouble. So they fled, often with the help of the German Army, into
0: Germany, where they hoped they would be safe. So we have the victims of fascism and then we have a lot of people who are who we should not call victims of fascism is that right absolutely absolutely and the problem facing the allies in 1945 was that most of the refugees could have gone home their governments especially those in eastern europe wanted them to come home in fact demanded that they be sent home because they needed workers but These hundreds, how, how many refused to go home? Well, my book is entitled The Last Million, and that's
2: because it was more than a million refugees who had been stuck in Germany when the war was over, refused to go home, or, in the case of the Jews, had no homes to return to.
0: And the UN Refugee Agency, you say decided the way to resettle refugees who couldn't go home or didn't want to go home was for the agency to become an employment agency and sell other countries around the world on the idea that refugees would be good workers. Which refugees were considered the most desirable?
2: The most desirable workers in 1946, 1947, 1948, were the Latvians, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, and some of the Ukrainians. And why? Because they were white, because they were Protestant, because for the Baltic survivors, they had only entered Germany in 1944 and 1945 with their families intact, unlike the Polish guest workers who had been in semi-captivity since 1940, or the Jew, Jewish survivors, the Latvians, Estonians, and Lithuanians were relatively healthy with the reputation of being hard workers who could take on manual labor.
0: And it took two years for this process to really get moving uh, when countries around the world finally opened their doors to the DPs, the displaced persons. When, When that happened in 1947, which countries welcomed the Jews? No countries welcomed the Jews. The only country that
2: welcomed the Jews was not a country yet, and that was the Jewish part of Palestine. And... About 20,000 Jews escaped from the displaced persons' camps and were illegally illegally entered or tried to enter what would become Israel. Uh, the exodus was part of this illegal journey. No nation on Earth welcomed the Jews. The United States certainly did not. Canada, Australia. Brazil, Argentina, you name the country. No one wanted the Jews. They were considered too clannish. They were considered likely to be Bolsheviks or communist sympathizers. They were considered to be too damaged by the war and constitutionally unable to do the work required of them. And they were Forced to remain in the displaced persons camps in Germany, for the most part, for three to five years, while the rest of the world debated what their future would be.
0: So, yeah, the part of your book about American policy is the most infuriating, the most uh, upsetting This is about, of course, the land of the free, the victors in World War II, give me your tired, your poor, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Uh, Congress passed, finally, a Displaced Persons Act in 1948. This is three years after the end of the war. Is it fair to say that bill deliberately excluded Jews and favored admission of ex-Nazis from Eastern Europe to the United States. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair statement. The bill was written in such a way as to give priority to those nations that were, quote, annexed by a foreign power. The only nations that were annexed in that way by a foreign power were Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. The majority of Nazi collaborators and war criminals who went to Germany were from Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. The bill also to make absolutely sure that no Jews were gonna get into the country without saying Jews prohibited, put a 40% priority on agricultural workers. The number of Jews who were agricultural workers and in displaced persons camps was minuscule.
0: You have a fascinating quote from Senator John Rankin, Democrat of Mississippi, who said he was opposed to admitting Jewish refugees for some conventional reasons. You've already cited them because the Jews bring with them, quote, communism, atheism, and anarchy. But he also included infidelity, I understand about communism, atheism, and anarchy, but I'd never heard about infidelity as a distinctive problem of the Jews before. Where did he get this?
2: Where where he got that was, I mean, it's the tragic situation of the Holocaust survivors. Families were broken up. And the only way to protect, preserve, and sustain a Jewish community was to have more babies. And in the displaced persons camps, Many young men and women married and had children, but because they refused, absolutely refused, to be married under German law, they were considered, these children were considered illegitimate. So that's the only possible place I can think that, you know, Ranking got this, you know, I don't want to try to explain what Ranking is thinking.
0: Okay. Beyond my K grade. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So you have an interesting argument that if we look at the people who who were behind the bill in Congress that excluded Jews, this was Midwestern Republicans and Southern Democrats. You said anti-Semitism was not their only motive. I was interested in that.
2: They said, we don't want Bolsheviks here and all Jews are Bolsheviks. The age old or the century old Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy was resurrected in Congress, and it was said because all the Jews ninety percent of the Jews who were going to come to this country were had come from Poland, and Poland was now dominated by the Soviet Union, all of these Polish Jews were likely communist supporters or communist operatives
0: and uh how accurate was that idea
2: it was totally absolutely (laughs) inaccurate i mean and and you know one of these senators uh senator of west virginia visited the camps and he found no evidence whatsoever of there being any communists in the camp among the jews so he said that was evidence that there were communists in the camps among the Jews and they were hiding their communist sympathies until they got to the United States and then they'd break them out into the open.
0: Uh, When when this bill finally came up for a vote in the house, you point out there were three future presidents who were members of Congress at that time. Kennedy, Nixon, and Johnson were all in the house in, in uh, 1948. How did each vote?
2: Kennedy and Nixon voted for the bill. Johnson was recorded as present but not voting.
0: Do you know what was the logic of of each here? What did it mean to vote for it? What did it mean not to vote?
2: In the end, in the end, all of the congressmen and the senators were forced to make a, a terrible decision. They wanted to help the displaced persons and get them out of Germany. But in order to do that, they had to discriminate against the Jews. If they voted against the bill, that meant that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Polish guest workers who wanted out of the displaced persons camps would be stuck in those camps for forever. So the choice was between having a displaced persons camp, displaced persons act, which did not discriminate against the Jews, or none at all. And even in the end, Harry Truman who wanted there to be sizable Jewish immigration into the United States. He signed the bill, and he signed the bill, he said, regrettably, because the bill was discriminatory and un-American in its prejudice
0: against Jews. So let's talk about the numbers here. How many Jews did manage to get admitted to the United States under the Displaced Persons Act, and how many anti-Semites, Nazi collaborators, and war criminals. Among the opponents of the bill were a
2: large number of Jewish activists, uh, some of whom would later write for The Nation. And they they claimed that no bill was better than any bill because the bill as written was going to keep out the Jews and allow the entrance into this country of Nazi collaborators and war criminals which is precisely what happened. We have no way of knowing how many war criminals and collaborators came into this country because they disguised themselves and were able to sneak in under false identities. We do know that in the final analysis of the 250,000 Jews who were in the displaced persons camps, about 50,000 of them came into the United States eventually Under the 1948 Discriminatory Act and the 1950 Act, which was less discriminatory.
0: So now let's talk about other countries. Many countries did nothing about the displaced people, million, one million people in Europe. And many did worse than nothing. They took in Nazi collaborators and war criminals. Which countries in the world took in the most? We simply cannot tell. What we do know
2: is that by 1950, 1951, to take the United States as an example, there were no restrictions. There was no attempt to call out the Nazi sympathizers.
0: But there were countries that did attempt to block Nazi collaborators and war criminals. Which countries were those?
2: The one country that really took this seriously was Canada. And Canada had the... Mounties, we think of them with you know their their high hats riding horses. They went to Germany and they interviewed and interviewed very carefully the displaced persons from Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania and the Ukraine, and refused to let in those they suspected of being war criminals. The United States on the other hand, in 1950, 1951, changed its regulations so that those who had been part of the Waffen SS were allowed to enter this country legally. There's an extraordinary story about coming over on the boat, a man named Herman Borenkot, who was a survivor of the, of the camps, saw on the boat a man who had been a camp guard in one of the concentration camps. His name was Albertus Boros. He told INS about this. INS stopped, put Boros in prison for two years, then released him and let him live a full and happy life in Connecticut, though he had been and acknowledged being a guard in the Nazi concentration
0: camp. Which countries admitted Jewish refugees after World War II. Which ones admitted the most? Which ones admitted the fewest? The United States,
2: in the end, admits the most, by far the most. Second is Israel, Australia, second, third, fourth, Israel, Australia, Canada. admit thousands, tens of thousands.
0: So you say that Palestine, Israel, was prob- had probably the second largest I- immigration. Of course, there's one big difference in, in Palestine and then in Israel. The uh, DPs moved into houses, villages, and neighborhoods that had recently belonged to Palestinian Arabs who themselves then became refugees in 1948 when Israel became a nation. This didn't happen, of course, in Australia or Canada or the United States. What, what do you make of that? Terrible irony.
2: The supreme and tragic irony is that the only place for the majority of Jewish survivors, of camp survivors, was Israel. And the only reason that they were admitted and welcomed into Israel was to increase the population of Jews and the homes, the farms. The settlements where they were put had once been occupied by Palestinians. So to solve the problem of the Jewish DPs, Israel, with a wink and a nod from the United States and the United Nations, created a much worse displaced persons problem, that of the Palestinians. The Jews suffered enormously and then, spent three to five years in displaced persons camps. The Palestinians had been in displaced persons camps since 1948. We're now in our second and third generations.
0: Switching to the present, there were, in 1945, there were about a million refugees in Europe. In the world today, the UN says there are more than 30 million refugees. Some estimates put it much higher. Uh, Supposedly over half of them are under 18. It was hard in 1945 to get countries to take refugees. Why is it so much harder now, do you think?
2: The major reason why there are more refugees and why there is much less opportunity for these refugees to be resettled is that the refugees I write about, the World War II refugees, were white and for the most part Christian with a small minority of Jews. Today's refugees are not white. They are people of color and only a minority of them are Christian. So the people of the, the governments of the world argue that these refugees are unassimilable. The the situation today is, is, is frightening because what the world believes and what the United Nations supports are putting these people in camps. And then if we can feed them and shelter them in tents, our responsibility in the West is finished. And as a result, for these refugees will spend their lives And the children will spend their lives in refugee camps.
0: And there's one other factor that you point to in your book. In the late 40s, Australia, Canada, lots of other countries felt they had a labor shortage and that they needed workers. Today, most countries don't feel they need workers. Most people feel it's a burden on their welfare systems to bring in more needy people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. 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 No, no matter the, the suffering, again, I don't want to downplay the suffering of the last million that I, that I talk about in this book, but these were extraordinarily resilient people, and the circumstances were such that they could be and were resettled outside of their camps in Germany. That is not the case with today's refugees.
0: Last question. How were you able to write this book? How were you able to face so much suffering for so many years and then such infuriating uh, opposition? The opening of your book alone is just a harrowing experience to read. You spent years immersed in this world. How did you do it?
2: You know, we historians, as you know, we have this, you know, this passion, this drive, To get the story right, to tell the story of those who cannot tell the stories themselves, to give voice to the voiceless. And that's what kept me going. You know, that that these were people whose stories should be told. Number one. Number two, I wanted to make it clear that wars do not end when the soldiers go home. The suffering of civilians in World War II and in the civil wars and wars between states that have followed has been intense. Wars bleed into post-wars and the suffering continues. And I felt an obligation to try to tell that story.
0: David Nassau, his magnificent new book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. David, thank you for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, we make many of our decisions, including political ones, not on the basis of what we think, in quotation marks, but rather on feelings, intuition, and habits. That's the argument of a new series on PBS called Hacking Your Mind, For comment, we turn to our Virus Time TV critic, Ella Taylor. Of course, she's written for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, The New York Times, and recently the LA Times op-ed page. We reached her once again at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back.
3: Hello, John.
0: Well, Hacking Your Mind is a four-part series produced, written, and directed by Carl Biker. It plays here in Southern California on Wednesday nights, and we hear from leading economists and social scientists who say we are operating mostly on what they call autopilot. Our political thinking, as a result, can be hacked by authoritarians like Donald Trump. Uh, Let's talk about hacking your mind.
3: So this week's theme, I think, is uh, science and consciousness. We'll be talking (laughs) later on about Oliver Sacks, so definitely... Um, and last week, we talked about Alex Gibney's Agents of Chaos, which was about how the Russians went about um, hacking our minds. And this week, uh, we're going, the, the series talks about why we're so susceptible to that happening. As you said, we think we make rational decisions, but much of the time that we don't. And uh, in the first episode, uh, th- three of these have already aired and the fourth is yet to come. The episode three, which is really kind of a summing up and, and moving forward, uh, aired last night, but you can find them on, on the PBS website, is on the distinction that was made by two Israeli social scientists. One, uh, the, one is an economist, was an economist and a psychologist, and that was Daniel Kahneman, and his colleague, um, Amos Tversky. And Tversky was a a behavioral psychologist and they worked together very well, at least up to a point. Um, If you wanna read about the whole story, there's a wonderful piece in the New Yorker um, by Cass Sunstein on their collaboration and and, uh, its meanings. They make a distinction between, that applies to all of us, which is slow thinking, which is logical and rational, uh, and considers the evidence available. It is in rather short supply these days. And fast thinking, which is when we think with our intuition and other parts of our anatomy, which we shouldn't be thinking with, (laughs) with our feelings, but that the errors that we make are quite predictable. For example, they say we don't like to lose, and we're much more sensitive to losing. So we're going to go with winners, which of course, is very applicable to our president's um, constant harping on winners and losers, and his recent remarks that soldiers were losers. And uh, in episodes two and three, they talk about the ways in which both capitalism and the politics under capitalism feed off those two processes, um, but in particular the latter, that is that they, they both uh, plunder and foster our um, fast thinking. That in itself is not new information, although the series is very inventive, both with its host um, Jacob Ward, who speaks very fast, so there's lots of information, but all of it is, is uh, presented in an entertaining way and with lots of graphics. Uh, when Back in the Neolithic age, when I was an uh, undergraduate, um, we had to read, and this was in England, the American um, social psychologist, Vance Packard, who wrote a book called The Hidden Persuaders, Um, which is about how advertising gets under our skin. What's new is that the tools uh, of branding and advertising are far more effective uh, and the milieu in which they occur, namely social media, um, far more ubiquitous. As a result, the consumer becomes the product. Now, that has always been the mantra of television advertisers, that the audience is, in fact, the product which is delivered to corporations. But now with the collection of data, enormous amounts of data and the bundling of that data, um, it becomes uh, much more critical and much more undermining of our democracy. But it's not just the economic engines that prey off them. It's also the political apparatus, um, which does the same thing in much the same way um, Cambridge, the whole Cambridge Analytica episode of collect- in which data were collected with the, also with the Brexit uh, vote. And uh, it, it answers the question of, of how likely it would be that a billionaire businessman from New York with no government experience gets elected as the President of the United States.
0: One of the most telling social scientists on this score is a a social, a social psychologist at Yale named Jennifer Richardson in episode three, who reports on a fascinating experiment she did where they took two groups of people. One group, they showed news reports about the census discovery of a coming white minority that now a majority of babies born in the United States are non-white. And another group who they showed other things unrelated to the coming white minority. And then they asked them, they measured their change in their political views, and they found that people who had watched the news reports about the coming white minority, who were white, endorsed right wing positions more than they had before they heard this news on a whole range of things, not just what you might expect affirmative action and police misconduct and things like that. Her conclusion is that anxiety among white people losing their power, their position, is an important force behind Trump. Now, we kind of suspected that, but here's a Yale social psychologist who's got scientific evidence about it. She doesn't say how many. How, is this every white person? Obviously, it's not, because you know most white people vote Republican, but that was true before Trump came along, before there was an issue of the coming white minority. I looked up I was so in- interested in this argument, I looked up how many people switched from Obama to Trump. This is a big question, which other social scientists have tried to answer. It's somewhere between 7 and 9 million people out of total 63 million voted um, in 2016. So that's about 13% of the total vote. Uh, were people who switched from Obama to Trump, and that was certainly big enough to make a difference in the key swing states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, and Wisconsin. So that's the kind of behavioral evidence that social scientists featured in Hacking Your Mind are, are coming up with, and it is pretty darn interesting.
3: It is, and as the series filmmakers and and Carl Biker, you know, wrote and and, uh, produced as well as directing this series, they do point out that Obama got a second term with similar persuasion techniques. So it's fairly ubiquitous. But the result of it, and I think, uh, you know, following on from your comments, is that um, the us versus them, in a situation where people are very fearful and the situation is fluid and uncertain, people think more and more in terms of us versus them. Civility just drops away. And uh, the people who don't think like you are considered to be bad people and purveyors of fake news. It's more ubiquitous on the right, but uh, the threat to our democracy follows directly from there. Now, I'm told that episode four um, is about how we can preserve our democracy, and I'm looking forward to that. We, need, we certainly need to know that.
0: Can watch
3: the series? I am a big bundle of anxiety and uh, trying to avoid fear and rage.
0: <laughs> uh, yes, I, I'm with you. There's some wonder, wonderful people appear on screen. Uh, You mentioned Daniel Kahneman, the Israeli behavioral economist who won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his critique of the idea that markets operate rationally he's just a completely warm and wonderful person to listen to i could i wish they would have spent the whole hour just with daniel kahneman explaining things there's also a wonderful behavioral economist from the university of chicago in episode i think it's two richard thaler who turns to the simpsons to explain the essence of his entire career and he's a very terrific, interesting guy. And then there's Tim Wu, who I've a very well-known name, especially in the world of KPFK. He's the Columbia Law School professor who invented the concept of network neutrality and has been a very big uh, figure in critiquing uh, social media, private ownership of social media and communications network. Uh, He says, if you're kidding yourself, if you think you can resist the plundering of our attention by social media... So Hacking Your Mind is a PBS series on social scientists who help explain, among other things, the rise of Trump. For something completely different, I would like to turn to an HBO series on teenagers on an American military base in Italy exploring uh, gender identities. It's a languid and lusty eight-part mini-series called We Are Who We Are, made by Luca Guardinino. He's the Italian director who made a highly regarded feature film. I loved it, Call Me By Your Name, which was also a languid and Lusty story about sexual coming of age of an American teenager uh, living with his family in Italy. HBO has shown two episodes of We Are Who We Are uh, thus far. I thought it was surprising and wonderful. I'm a fan. What about you?
3: Um, a little less than you are. I mean, I was not bored at any point. I will say, and uh, certainly the concept, I mean, or the setting, more correctly, um, is pretty fresh. And uh, because they are on an American uh, military base, uh, this this group of teenager, they're all military brats. Uh, by that, I just mean they're the sons and daughters of military people. <laughs> and it has a very good cast and it begins with the arrival of um, Chloe Sevigny, who plays the new commander of the base, and her wife, who's played by Alice Braga, and their son, uh, who's uh, Fraser, who's uh, played by Jack Dylan Grazer. And
0: May I say, he has the worst pair of pants I have ever seen on television. <laughs>
3: And not only does he wear leopard skin pants, but uh, his limbs tend to not work in unison. (laughs) And uh, uh, Jack Dylan Grazer, who plays him as this kind of mess of a kid who's also extremely vibrant and unexpected in in so many ways. And um, it presumably will come out of the closet at some point in in the eight part series. Um, it also stars a very talented young woman named uh, Jordan Christine Seaman as Caitlin, who's the other major figure here. And she is struggling very much with her gender identity and and her sexuality. She's very beautiful. I don't know whether she's Eurasian or, or uh, it, it's not easy to tell, but... She's also um, a really fine young actress. There's also a great performance by Francesca Scorsese, who is uh, Martin's daughter. Uh, She plays a chubby, uh, bubbly and lively friend and she's very good indeed. I found that it was kind of poorly written. Uh, It's very flat on the page. I found it quite hackneyed and trite at times. My problem is that you really can't tell where this is going thematically, not plot-wise, because I think it's meant to be a study.
0: Yeah, it certainly doesn't have much of a plot. The pleasures of this are, are the visual pleasures and the, the kind of mood and the psychological picture of mixed-up kids and what it's like to be an alienated teenager. That's the strength of it. So we've been talking about Luca Guadagnino's *We Are Who We Are*, eight-part uh, mini series drama on HBO. We have time for one more, mm-hmm. and you say there's a great one about Oliver Sacks that's pl- yes. documentary playing now.
3: Yes, um, I don't need to remind our listeners probably that uh, that Sacks was a, a very famous. Um, neuroscientist who put a human face on, uh, on both the science of what ailed his patients and also he took them as individuals and immersed himself in their lives. Some critics said too much so, uh, but this is uh, a very loving portrait uh, directed by Rick Burns um, he's very logorik. He's a wonderful storyteller. He's extremely funny and very self-critical and quite childlike, as various people um, point out. The movie, uh, you know, goes through his life. He had some very troubled early years. His brother was, uh, his beloved brother, was schizophrenic. He himself says that he grew up in a typical Orthodox Jewish family in London. And I beg to differ. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> is that this was i mean his parents were both surgeons (laughs) eminent surgeons at a time when most jewish women didn't work at all (laughs) um they were uh, a very um enabling and disabling um set of parents especially his mother he was devastated um by his brother's illness. And he suddenly upped and went to America, which is where all good Brits go to invent, reinvent themselves, me included. Um, he re- reinvented himself as a gay man and for a while was very strung out on, on heavy drugs. I mean, he almost killed himself by his own admission. And was really, and, and, he, and then he became celibate for 35 years until he met Billy. Uh, he was saved very much by his work and by by putting a, a human face on on the science of human feelings and behaviour. Uh, that part of it is very well known and is deeply explored um, in the film, and I, I recommend it highly. It can be seen on um, Kino Marquee and at Film Forum. Um, starting yesterday. So you can find it there. And it's very delightful. It's often very sad, um, but, uh, not a hagiography by any means.
0: Ella Taylor, our virus time TV critic. Ella, thanks again.
3: I love being referred to as a viral TV critic. <laughs> 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 Thank you, John. A pleasure.
0: Finally, Maybe you noticed things are heating up in every way possible. The climate, state wildfires, racial tensions, the pandemic still raging, and the hottest ticket of them all, the presidential election. Don't wait for our fall fun drive to give. Make that donation to KPFK now while it's fresh in your mind. Donate at kpfk.org donate or call 818 985 five seven three five. That's kpfk.org slash donate or eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. Well that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer D'Angelo Jones our producer Renee Reynolds As always, we thank Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.